We are doing another open study tonight uh, for those that are wanting to find this later on Sermon Audio. It'll be open study number 81. And uh, someone recently asked me if it would be possible to uh, create an index of the subjects that we've covered in the open studies because there's 81 of them, but they're only identified by number. And uh, it's anybody's guess as to what questions were actually addressed in each one of those studies. So uh, David and I have been working on creating an index, and we're getting close to completing it. Uh, We just have a few that, um, based on my notes from years ago, because we've been doing open studies for, gosh, 15 years now. Uh, The first one I have uh, was from 15 years ago. Um, So based upon some of my early notes, it wasn't clear exactly which topics were covered on which ones. So we're still, we still have maybe out of the 81, we still have maybe five to 10 that need to be identified. But uh, we've got about 70 of them already, um, already indexed. And what we're going to do is David will upload a document. There's a PDF document you can upload to our sermon audio site. You'll find it in the drop down menu for the open studies. And um, you can click on that if you're interested in finding out, well, what questions have we covered, you know, years ago? Um, And uh, it'll save you some trouble of trying to track those down. All right, so for tonight, I've got three excellent questions. The first one's actually a two-part question, so it's technically four questions. I'm not sure I'll get through all three or four of these questions tonight. Um, For sure, I'll get the first couple done and then possibly uh, the others as well. And as I've done before, if I don't get to all of the questions I've got prepared tonight, um, we'll just save them for the next round of open studies that we're doing. So this first question was connected to the book of Revelation. And the question was, uh, can you explain the entire book of Revelation to me in detail? No, I was just joking. (laughs) That was Bob's question, just so you know. Um, yeah, it does figure. Just real quick. <laughs> Actually, there were two questions from the book of Revelation. One of them from, cha- and I'll read these verses in a moment, one from chapter 3 and one from the last chapter, chapter 22. And um, the first one has to do with the blotting out of names from the Lamb's book of life. And the second has to do with God taking away a person's share in something of value in the eyes of the Lord. And so the person that asked the question about the blotting out wanted to know, what, what does that mean? I mean, does that mean that the persons who, whose name is blotted out um, will lose their salvation? And what does it mean if God takes away their share, will they lose their salvation? So the questions are similar, but the passages are distinct. So let's read the two passages Um, first one is in chapter 3. Keep your place there as I read it because I'm jumping to 22, but we'll come back to to chapter 3. So chapter 3, this was part of a larger letter that was written, you might remember, in chapters 2 and 3 in Revelation. It's not so much the apocalyptic visions of the rest of the book, but these two chapters were seven smaller letters like the letters to the Romans and the Corinthians and the Ephesians, seven letters to seven different churches that were all in the region near where John the Apostle was imprisoned for the faith. He was on the island of Patmos just off of the coast of modern-day Turkey, and these seven churches were on the mainland nearby. And uh, so the Lord, through John, is writing letters to these churches, and they're smaller. They're not they're not, uh, in, in each of the cases of the seven, they're not even a full chapter of the book of Revelation, uh, and certainly not as long as the other New Testament letters. But they're certainly important. And in this one, the question was from the letter to the church in Sardis, and it was in verse 5. And the Lord, keep in mind, the Lord Jesus is speaking here, and he's speaking to the church, and he says this, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, 
and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Verse 6 just confirms that this is a message to the church and not just that one isolated church in distinction from all churches elsewhere and all churches to follow in history because verse 6 says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So whatever is being said about the blotting out of the name in verse 5 still speaks to us today. So we'll come back to that. Let's jump over to chapter 22. And of course, this is the last chapter of Revelation. And we'll read two verses. And this functions as what we could call the final warning in the book of Revelation. There are, the book of Revelation contains many important warnings. This is the final one recorded in the book. Verse 18, the Lord still speaking. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. All right, so the Images are different in the two passages. One, a a blotting out image from a book, and the other, a taking away of a share. Uh, The share is combined with a share in the tree of life and a share in in the holy city, the holy city being not natural earthly Jerusalem in the context of the book, but a a higher, a greater, a heavenly Jerusalem, what we would call heaven itself. So, in both cases, though, the person want to know, is this, are these two words of warning from the Lord, are these, are these words to God's people warning them that if you mess up in the ways that chapter 3 is describing to the church in Sardis and the ways that the Lord is describing to all the readers of the book in chapter 22, but if you mess up as a, as a true follower of Christ, if you mess up as a true believer, that your name, which previously had been written in the Lamb's Book of Life, will subsequently be blotted out of the book. So your name, the the image is, your name was there in the book, and then the Lord comes along and blots the name out, meaning your name is no longer recorded in the Book of Life. And then in chapter 22, you had a share as a true believer in the Tree of Life, And you had a share in the heavenly city, but the Lord comes and removes your share from you so that you who one time, at one point, shared in those things no longer have any share in them. And the answer, I'll give you the answer right up front, and then I'll make my case. The answer in both cases is no, that is not what these two passages are saying to the church and to true believers. I am convinced, you've heard me teach this, I'm not going to go through a whole teaching on the positive side tonight. Um, I can reference, if you're interested, I can reference teachings where I have done this in more detail. But I am convinced 100% that anyone who is ever truly born again, anyone who is therefore identified by the Lord as belonging to him, part of his family, one of his sheep, using the various images that the Lord gives us, that that person will never, can never lose their salvation. Meaning I am 1,000% convinced that if you ever are truly saved, you will always and forever be truly saved. Now, is it also true, though, that there are those that participate in what we call church life, who even undergo the ritual, the spiritual ritual of water baptism, who own a copy of the Bible and read it, who uh, come and fellowship among us in church services, who sing the songs of worship and who 
come through the communion line and receive the elements and eat them and drink them, who pray with us, who fellowship with us, is it who even serve side by side with us in kingdom work? Is it true that some of those could, as we, as we try to discern their true spiritual condition later, could never have actually been saved and therefore are capable of, in a sense, falling away from the faith in the sense that it becomes revealed that their hearts were never truly changed in the way that those of us who know the Lord have had a transformed and changed heart. And the answer to that is yes, that is absolutely true. And that's an experience that even all true churches have to experience. Those that, that are among us that don't really belong to us, but for a time seemed like they did. Um, David just recently finished taking us through a, an, an expositional study in the book of 1 John, and then he took us through 2 and 3 John as well, which are somewhat related, of course. But the main point of 1 John was that there were some within the churches, even that John the Apostle was ministering to, that gave the appearance of a salvation relationship with the Lord, but in reality, they, they weren't actually saved. And the whole point of the gospel, the, uh, the letter of 1 John is presenting for the church's consumption and therefore equipping the church for deeper and greater and more accurate discernment. How do we know when someone's really saved? And John provides a series of spiritual tests that should in a healthy sense be applied to ourselves first, but also can be applied in a one another context in the fellowship so that we can evaluate whether we are truly saved or not. So getting back to the Revelation passage, my point is that I don't believe that whatever is being indicated, declared, or even implied by the Lord in these two passages is meant to lead us to the conclusion that, okay, these were true believers, and then later they messed up so bad that, the Lord said, okay, you belong to me, but now I'm blotting your name out. You belong to me, but now I'm taking away your share. I do think they're saying something very important, but not that. So let's go back to the, as I said, the, the chapter three one, and let's read that once again. It's just a single verse. And then let's try to understand what this is, I believe, actually communicating to us. The Lord is speaking to his people in the church in Sardis. He says, the one who conquers will thus will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now, for the sake of getting a clear explanation of what verse 5 means. I think it's important for us to go back and just briefly read the context of the rest of the letter. Because there was an issue going on in the church in Sardis that's similar to the one I just described. Let's start in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. That's, of course, the Lord Jesus. And now it's quoting the Lord Jesus, the Lord of the church. I know your works. This is the church as a whole. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. What does that mean? It means that there was death in this church. There was spiritual death in the church. Does that mean every single person in the church was dead? No, but apparently too many were. Let's read on. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. So there is spiritual death in the church, but there's also the threat of increasing spiritual death in the church. And the Lord is issuing a warning to the church so that those who are on the precipice of death will not die in the way that he's describing. He says, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. 
Remember then what you received and heard. That's the gospel, of course. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. That's a, that's a warning and a, a, a threat level warning from the Lord of an impending judgment heading the, way, the, the, the direction of the church from the Lord. He is bringing judgment upon the church, but it hasn't hit yet. And this letter is functioning as a gracious and merciful opportunity from the Lord to fully wake up those who have ears to hear and a heart to respond that are in the church. He says, verse 4, Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And then that leads immediately to verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his, or never blot his name out of the book of life. So what's happening here is that the church in Sardis, and this, this is to some degree true of all churches, but it was to a greater degree true of the church in Sardis than it was other churches because the Lord doesn't issue such a strong warning to every single one of the seven churches in the book of Revelation. But this church needed that warning. The issue was, the church was what we would call a mixed fellowship or a mixed community. There were some within the church that truly knew the Lord. He describes them in verse 4 and in verse 5 and in verse 6. And then there are some who were in the church who are participating in all of the activities and life of the church, but who were functioning in spiritual death rather than in spiritual life. So spiritual death and spiritual life, we've talked about these issues before, but I want to be super clear about them. They are not issues, those two descriptions, spiritual death and spiritual life are not issues of degree. They're not issues of, okay, well, any one individual in the church is 50% spiritually alive and 50% spiritually dead. Is that possible for a person to be 50-50 in those categories of spiritual condition, true spiritual condition? And the answer is no. It's, a, it's an all or nothing consideration. You either are spiritually alive or you are spiritually dead. You can't be both at the same time. Just like you cannot, it's not even a possibility in our minds other than in science fiction with the concept of zombies that you can be at the same time both alive and dead. You are spiritually speaking either alive or you are dead just like physically speaking in this world a person is properly described as being alive or they are dead. They can't be both. And as soon as they die, they're no longer alive. And as soon as they're alive, they cannot possibly be described as dead. So, let's go back and find what most of, if you study the book of, and we're heading back, by the way, to Exodus 32. Um, when, we, um, when we study the book of Revelation, one of the things, and I've never, of course, done a detailed study of the whole book of Revelation yet. I would love to do it someday. Uh, but uh, one of the things that I have learned in my own studies of the book of Revelation is that it is literally filled, jam-packed with Old Testament references and Old Testament images and Old Testament symbols. And this is the case, this blotting out of a name from the book of life is an Old Testament reference. And it comes from a very important moment in Israel's history in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. And that is, the Lord had, under Moses, led the children of Israel out of Egypt. He led them into the wilderness. They're on their journey. They don't realize at this point it's gonna take 40 years. They're at the very beginning of their journey. But they've come to the foot of a special mountain, which is Mount Sinai. And the Lord called Moses to come up and meet him on the, the summit of the mountain because the Lord is going to reveal to Moses the law, the Ten Commandments, 
and he's going to reveal to him the blueprint for the construction of the tabernacle. And of course, while Moses was on the mountaintop, a problem developed at the foot of the mountain in the camp of Israel. What was the problem? The problem was what we call the golden calf incident. So I, I know you're familiar with it. I don't need to read the portion that describes what happened with the golden calf. Uh, you know the story. The, the children of Israel just veered morally and spiritually way off course, and they convinced Aaron to, to take all of their jewelry and to, to melt it down, and they, they cast, Aaron cast this golden calf in it, and it became the focal point of their worship. And the reason why they were willing to do this was because Moses was too long on the mountaintop. He was 40 days and 40 nights up there. And they just, their faith couldn't stretch a whole 40-day absence. And so they were like, all right, God brought us this far, but we need, you know, God's just kind of abandoned us here at the foot of the mountain, and we need another God to, to lead us from this point forward. And so they were looking to the golden calf to do that. And of course, that's what we would call idolatry. And it was an idolatrous abandonment of their heart's relationship with the Lord. There was nothing good about what they were doing with the golden calf. Let's read what happens following the golden calf incident. Chapter 32. I'll start reading in verse 30. So yesterday was the golden calf in the story. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. So Moses does a wonderful thing here. He's really, he's really symbolically representing Christ. Christ's willingness to be made a curse in order for the people that God intended to save to be brought into the blessing of salvation. And Moses is functioning in that same way. He's saying, Lord, you know, your people have really, really, really blown it. This is a great sin. He, he's not soft describing at all the seriousness of this sin of idolatrous abandonment of the Lord. But what he is saying is, Lord, if it's possible, instead of taking your anger out on them, why don't you blot me out of your book? And his, the implication of his offer is so that they don't need to be blotted out of your book. And the Lord, I think, appreciated Moses' offer, but he doesn't say that. What he does say, however, is pretty clear and should not be missed in our consideration. Verse 33 again, but the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now, who is the Lord talking about? He's not talking about Moses. He's talking about the people that had sinned against the Lord in the golden calf incident. And he, when he says, whoever has sinned against me, I think we're meant to read into that how Moses had just described their sin. It's not, whoever, the Lord doesn't say in verse 33, whoever sins any minor sin against me, I will blot out of my book. But whoever sins in this kind of way, this great idolatrous abandonment of covenant relationship with me kind of way, I will blot out of my book. Now, in the Old Covenant, this was an absolute threat with real ramifications attached to it. And the reason for that is, in the Old Covenant, it was possible to be part of the covenant people having never actually been saved by the Lord. You could have a covenant relationship with the Lord as part of the children of Israel with not having a saving relationship with the Lord. Why is that? How were people brought into the covenant 
in the old covenant context. How did they enter the covenant? They entered the covenant by one way and only one way, circumcision. So if you were born to an Israelite family and then circumcised, that was the symbol and the sign that you have now entered into the covenant. What day would that take place, though, in a young child's life? Uh, The eighth day. So how knowledgeable, how conscious of the decision to enter into a covenant relationship with the Lord is an eight-day-old child? And the answer is they have no thoughts about it whatsoever. They're being brought into the covenant and into, therefore, an identification with the covenant community based upon the obedience of their parents in that circumstance. Now, of course, this was also available, and there's only a few examples of this, but it was also possible for a Gentile to be added to the covenant community as long as they were willing to so obey the Lord and to identify with the covenant of the Lord through the rite of circumcision as well. But that was it. That's the one entry point into the old covenant. The question is, was everybody that was circumcised and therefore identified with Old Covenant Israel, were they therefore all saved? And the answer is, no, they were not all saved. Let's look at a couple of New Testament passages in the book of Romans. First one is in Romans chapter 2. And this is after the fact. This is Paul who knew so much about these issues both by God's grace, of course, but also by his own experience, having been on both sides of this issue, um, first as a Pharisee and then later as a, as a born-again man who was called to become an apostle. But here in Romans chapter 2, I'm going to read just two verses, verses 28 and 29. The whole context is worth reading, but for time, just read these two verses. Paul says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul's point there was not to throw out the reality of physical circumcision, but to say that Physical circumcision is simply a ritual, and if the heart is not engaged in what the meaning of that ritual points to, then that person cannot properly be considered to be a saved person. Now, of course, at eight days old, no one can know that, but the point being, as that eight-day-old grows up and begins to learn about the things of the Lord and the ways of the Lord, at some point, their heart is either going to engage with the Lord in a saving way or their heart never will. And so you had within Israel both truly saved people and unsaved people, but they were both part of the covenant community. Let's look at one other passage passage in Romans. This one is in chapter 9. And again, the context would help, but let's just read verse 6 to speak to this particular issue. Paul writes, but it is, not as, it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. It's that last phrase I want to focus our attention on. For not all who are descended from Israel, who, are, who is descended from Israel? Anyone born into a Jewish family. In that ancient covenant context. But not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, meaning he's using Israel in two different ways here. He's using Israel in a, in a natural, this is a group of people, a specific tribal kind of affiliation, uh, a, a specific descent from Abraham, anyone born to that family, to that lineage. But then in the second use of Israel, he's deepening the meaning of Israel and emphasizing Israel has a spiritual sense to it, not just a physical sense. And spiritually, Israel in the Old Covenant represents those who were saved among all who were born and circumcised, but not all were. So you had King David, who truly was saved, 
truly did know the Lord. We know that with 1,000% certainty because the Lord spoke about King David and said, this is a man after my own heart. And then he has a son born of his own loins whose name is Absalom, who rebels against the Lord and rebels against his father and steals the kingdom that God had given to David and does wickedness and is an enemy both of his father and of the Lord and is judged severely at the end of his life and dies under the Lord's judgment. So David is truly saved, but here is a a son born to him who is not truly saved. And so you have this mixed community of Israel. And in that context, when the Lord says to Moses, those who sin against me, I will blot out their names. So in the old covenant sense, a person could have their name enrolled in the book of the Lord, but never truly be saved. How could that be? Because it was a covenant book. It was a book of covenant affiliation, covenant identity. As soon as someone is circumcised, their name would be recorded in the book. And it's a spiritual book, not a physical book. It wasn't like Moses was carrying the book around. This is the Lord's book. The Lord records the name because they are part of the covenant community. But if they don't know the Lord, then later as they live their life and their works are revealed in their heart, the wickedness of their heart is revealed, the Lord declares to Moses, I will blot their name out. And so their name was blotted out. I can confidently say David's name remained in the book, even through all of his great struggles with Bathsheba. His name remained in the book, but Absalom's name was blotted out of the book. And you won't see Absalom in heaven in the same way that you will see King David in heaven. Now, let's go back and finish this question. Revelation chapter 3. Is Revelation chapter 3, the letter to the church in Sardis, a new covenant or old covenant statement? It's a new covenant statement to a new covenant church. And I want us to pay careful attention to the similarity and the difference between this statement in the letter to the church in Sardis and what the Lord said to Moses. The Lord said to Moses the day after the golden calf incident, when Moses offered, Lord, if it'll save Israel, you can blot my name out. And the Lord said, no, I'm not blotting your name out. Why would the Lord not blot Moses' name out, even if he offered it? Because Moses belonged to him in a truly saved way. His name could not be blotted out of the book. But he did say, the Lord did, if someone sins against me in the same way that this golden calf sin incident has taken place, don't worry, I will blot their name out. It's up to me whose name remains and whose name is blotted out. Now, when we read in verse 5 of chapter 3 of Revelation, we, we should read the similarity. There is a blotting out being mentioned, and we should read the difference. There's a difference in what the Lord says here to what he said to Moses. Verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name or never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now, there are Bible commentators, there are Bible teachers, there are scholars who read this and say, this clearly implies some will have their name blotted out, and they link it to the Exodus passage where God said to Moses, I will blot some names out of the book. The difference, though, and I see a clear distinction, is the Lord in this passage never actually says he's blotting names out. This is what we can call a negative promise. What I mean by that is it's a positive point that the Lord is making using the framework of a negative circumstance to actually not threaten the people in Sardis or even warn the people in Sardis, but to encourage the people in Sardis. Now, in Sardis, we've already identified it's a mixed community within the church. Some were walking with the Lord, some were not. 
Some had soiled their garments. Some were walking with the Lord in, in a white garment context, meaning in true righteousness. The Lord says only here to the people that are walking with him in white garments, the people who are committed to walking in righteousness, following the Lord, obeying the Lord, therefore people who truly knew the Lord and were living according to his ways, he says to them, I will never blot your name out. He is referencing the Exodus issue, but he is putting these, and and going back up, it's in verse 4, yet you still have a few names in Sardis. There's a few faithful ones, even in this struggling church. And he is only making this promise to those few who are not compromising and are not sinning in that kind of serious way. Yes, there's a warning to the rest, but he doesn't say to the rest, I will blot their names out. Why? Because the names are recorded differently in the new covenant than they are in the old covenant. So in the old covenant, whose names are recorded? And this is just a review of what we just covered. Everyone who is circumcised, everyone who is in a covenant relationship with the Lord, but it doesn't mean everyone who is circumcised was saved. In the new covenant, whose names are recorded in the Lamb's book of life? Only those that are born again. Only those who truly know the Lord. Only those who are saved. So that's why in this case, the Lord doesn't say, I'm going to, in the church in Sardis, some of you, I'm going to blot your names out and some of them, I'm not going to blot your names out. He never actually says that. And to read it that way is to read into what the Lord says something that's not actually there. This is not a warning about losing your salvation in Revelation 3 verse 5. It's an assurance that you will never lose your salvation. It functions as the exact opposite of what some take it to mean. It functions as the Lord's promise and assurance that if you have a true spiritual relationship with me, you will never lose that. I will never blot you out of my book. All right, that's enough on that one, I think. And let's go to the second one, chapter 22. This is somewhat similar, but it's a little bit different circumstance. Let me read those two verses again, 18 and 19. And as I mentioned, these verses function as the final warning of the book. I I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, meaning you, you, you decide that God's book is not sufficient, and you decide other words need to be categorized as just as inspired as Scripture, Scripture is not sufficient, therefore I need to add more to it because whatever God revealed is only partially beneficial and in order to get the full benefit, I need to add my own thoughts and call them Scripture or put other words in the same category as Scripture. God takes that as such a serious threat to the integrity of his word, his revealed word, that he says if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, meaning if you decide, you know, there's some things in in Scripture and and specifically in the book of Revelation here that I just don't like. So I'm going to, you know, you guys have heard about the the Bible that Thomas Jefferson, you know, one of the founding fathers, the book that he published, the, the Jefferson New Testament, in which he went through the New Testament and just... He just literally chopped huge sections out of the New Testament because he just wasn't comfortable with them. And he chopped them out and then organized the rest of the material that he didn't delete and decided to publish it and call it the Jefferson New Testament. Um, he had a big issue, especially with all of the, the supernatural elements, you know, the resurrection, the miracles, the, the healings, the things that could not be explained in a naturalistic worldview. Uh, Those are things that he just deleted. 
So if anyone, God says here, if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. All right, so we have a similar kind of issue here, but it's a li- as I said, it's, it's a little bit different. It, does it mean that someone had a share in the tree of life, someone had a share in the holy city, and then ultimately had that removed by the Lord and therefore lost their salvation. Uh, let me just, I've already stated my, my belief about losing your salvation, but let me just read you this passage. I know it's a familiar one to you, just to remind you of the biblical reasons why uh, I don't think it's valid to um, conclude that a person, if they're ever truly saved, can lose their salvation. This is from the Gospel of John, chapter 10. Verses 27 through 29, the Lord Jesus is speaking in this passage. And he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them, that's the Lord Jesus gives to those he calls his sheep. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. He doesn't say most of them won't perish, but some of them are going to perish. They all who are identified as his sheep will never perish. Well, you might say, well, what about Judas? Didn't Judas perish? Yes, Judas perished. But Judas was never identified by the Lord as one of his sheep. In fact, the Lord categorized him in a completely different way than the other disciples. He called him the son of perdition. He called him the the son who belonged to deserved final judgment from the Lord. He knew from the beginning who he was and what he was really all about and was never once or for one moment fooled about the, the true condition of Judas' heart. Now, as a shepherd, I've had the experience of being fooled by the true condition of someone's heart, and it later it became apparent and was revealed to me, but for a while I thought they truly knew the Lord. But I'm not the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus is never fooled and ne- never has a, a wrong evaluation as to whether someone is one of his sheep or not. So he says... I give them, my sheep, eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And so the point of that is, I do not believe, I am 100% again convinced that whatever this revelation passage is describing, it's not describing someone who was saved and then later has salvation removed from them. So what is it talking about? Well, I think it's similar to another Old Testament passage. Let me just read this one to you. This is from Deuteronomy. Remember, I I mentioned that almost all of the passages in Revelation are connected to one Old Testament passage or another. This is Deuteronomy 4. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I'm teaching you and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. So clearly, this you don't add to what's revealed and don't take away from what is revealed is the comparison theme both in the Deuteronomy passage and the Revelation passage. So what is the Revelation warning telling us? It's a strong warning, obviously, about people who who damage the revealed, in this case, the book of Revelation, the revealed prophecy of the Lord by either adding to it or taking away from it. And it's true that um, both the imagery of taking away their part in the tree of life and the imagery of taking away their part in the holy city or the heavenly city, those are salvation symbols. Those are salvation images. The tree of life is a symbol of salvation. A citizenship in the heavenly city, the holy city, is a salvation image. So what does it mean that they're having their part taken away from them? Okay, one last passage, and I think this will explain it for us. This is from the book of Acts. We're not quite there yet in our Acts study. Uh, Chapter 8 of Acts. This is the famous account of what happened in 
uh, the city of Samaria as Philip the Evangelist went and preached the gospel. First time the gospel had ever reached the city of Samaria. And when he got there, he proclaimed the gospel and most all of the city responded positively to it. But there was a man there known as Simon the Magician who represented an interesting twist to the story of this, the gospel entering this city. He, um, he had a, what he did for a living basically was he convinced people that he had special spiritual powers. And now that the gospel was impacting the city, it became obvious to him that he was going to lose his income stream because people now were, were coming to know the Lord and they weren't going to be following him any longer. And let's read what happens in verse 18, starting in verse 18. So Philip has called for, at this point, he's called for Peter and John to come down to the city of Samaria, literally come up to the city of Samaria and to pray for the Samaritans and to lead them into a full salvation experience. Verse 18, now when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, how does Peter respond to him? He says, but Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. And then verse 21 is how I'm going to explain Revelation 22, 18 and 19. Peter says to him, you have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Basically, he's telling Simon, you are not saved. Now, what's interesting is prior to this moment, Simon had heard the gospel preached along with Philip, and he seemed to believe it, and he was even baptized. But he was not saved. He was not yet born again. And he's trying to use this gospel moment to create a new opportunity for himself to manipulate and control in a religious way the the inhabitants of the city of Samaria. And Peter's not fooled at all. He recognizes that what Simon is doing is evil. And he says to him, you have neither part nor lot in this matter. So heading back then to Revelation 22, when we read this final warning in verse 18 and 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in the book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Take away the share means you have no part nor lot. It's not a statement that this person was truly saved and then lost their salvation. It's a statement that they may have appeared to have a share, but just like Simon appeared to have a share in the kingdom, it was revealed by his heart and by his actions and by his decisions that he never really had a part at all. And so this is an assurance that no one who is not born again and anyone who is twisting and damaging the revealed word of God in this way clearly is making it evident that they never were born again. Anyone like that will not have a part or a share. It's a description of what would have been available to them had their heart been right before the Lord, but an assurance that they will be given no part in the eternal kingdom and in the tree of life. All right. I think we've got just enough time for one more. And we will do, um, we'll do this question. Uh, it's an interesting one. It comes up periodically. And it has to do with a certain Christian tradition. The question is, is there a biblical age of accountability? How many of you have heard of this concept before of the age of accountability? Okay, most of us have heard of it before. Um, 
There's a tradition in Christian circles, church circles, Bible-believing and Bible-teaching and Bible-following circles. Not everyone who is in church, not everyone who studies the Bible you know, holds to this position, but many, many do. The tradition goes like this. Somewhere around, and the, the age varies depending upon the teacher, somewhere around the ages five through eight, and that's generally the age range, kids suddenly become accountable for the sins that they commit. And what's implied, but not ever directly stated, is that any sins that a child may commit prior to that age of accountability are not counted, meaning that they, the Lord just allows them space to sin as much as they want. He doesn't really, you know, it doesn't really matter to him until they reach the, and I'll just use a term here, the magical age of accountability, and that suddenly then the Lord gets serious about, hey, you're, you're blowing it, you're sinning, I'm going to hold you accountable to my standards. All right, first, there's nowhere in the Old Covenant, nowhere in the New Covenant, nowhere in the Old Testament, nowhere in the New Testament where such a concept is described. And certainly... If there were, you would expect there to be a specific age mentioned and given so that we could know when to watch for it. You know, like if I, if I say to you, your child, you know, somewhere between the ages five and eight suddenly will go from being innocent to go to being a sinner, um, wouldn't you want to know what age that actually is? So that as a, as a godly parent, you can, you can actually guide your child in the right way when that time comes and even before that time comes so is there a biblical age of accountability in that traditional sense and the answer is no and that's nowhere in the bible it's just a made-up tradition now why has the tradition been formed generally because what happens if a very young child dies and we we, we, we're not assured yet at that young age that they have truly come to know the Lord, believe the gospel, have truly been born again, and we don't want to deal with the, the challenging possibility that they might not be in heaven, and especially if the child belongs to us. And so with good intentions, Bible teachers and pastors and scholars have created this tradition around this concept. Um, but is there some sense in which a child at age two has a different relationship of what we can call accountability, but I'm going to change the wording to responsibility, to the Lord and, and at, an, at a later age? And yes, I think there is a sense of that. So I, I'm going to answer this in a yes and no way. Let me tackle the no first. Uh, there's no age of accountability in the sense that there's a passage I can point you to and say, there it is, it's age you know, eight, uh, and, and it's chapter and verse. Here, here, let me take you to the passage. There is no such passage. And, biblically speaking, ignorance of the law is no excuse for violating the law of God, violating the standards of God. So whether you're age two, and is it, let me just ask you this question. Is it possible for a two-year-old to sin? It actually is possible. You know, if their parent says to them, no, don't touch that, and they give you that look where you know they're aware of what you're saying and they get the concept and then they, watching your eyes, reach their hand out and touch it anyway just to see what's going to happen, that's sin. I, you can call it whatever you want to call it, but I'm just going to use the, the biblical and spiritual terminology to describe that's rebellion in the heart that's stubbornness, that's resisting the authority that God has ordained over their life at that moment in their life, and that can only be rightly described as sin. And ignorance of all of the details of God's standards is no excuse for violating or crossing those lines. So I'm going to say it this way. When does God begin to hold people accountable for their sins? As soon as they commit one. Now, I do think it's a different age, 
My first sin was committed probably on a different date of my personal chronology than your first sin was committed. Maybe I committed my first one before you committed your first one. Maybe you committed your first one before I committed my first one. But one way or the other, you and I both committed a first sin in this world. And it was very young when we committed that first sin. And I believe God holds on the day of judgment everyone accountable for every sin they ever commit unless the issue of their sin is resolved in a saving way at the cross. So I think in terms of age of accountability, what is the biblical age of accountability? Birth. Entrance into this world. You've drawn your first breath and now you're accountable for any sin you may commit. It's not for me or you to figure out when you do commit your first sin, but God knows when you do, and whenever you do, you're accountable for it, and it's not going to be dropped off of the list on the day of judgment, as if you didn't fully grasp all the details, therefore God's not going to hold you accountable. So in that sense, and I'll give you just a couple of passages, I don't have time to read them, Uh, Psalm 51 verse 5, from the Old Testament, Romans 5, 12 through 14. Both passages very clearly indicate that God holds us accountable for sin from the beginning of our lives. And it's an issue of our accountability from that early point. So I'll say it this way, using a a Monopoly um, example. Uh, How many of you have ever played Monopoly? Okay, you know that one square that we all enjoy, which is called free parking? You know, where there's just, you know, you, you land there and you don't owe any, anyone anything. There is no spiritual free parking zone in our relationship with the Lord. We always owe him obedience from day one of our life in this world. And if we disobey him and rebel against him and sin against him and his ways, we're held accountable to that. But is there a sense in which a two-year-old is not as responsible in their in their in their decisions, their attitudes, their behaviors, as a 20-year-old is or a 40-year-old is. And yes, responsibility grows because the Bible links knowledge with responsibility. To whom much is given, much is required. So the more you learn, the more responsible you are. That doesn't lessen the responsibility for committing sin that we all have, but it increases our responsibility as we grow in our knowledge and understanding. Now, there is no specific passage that that lays out what I'm about to share, but in the ancient world, in the Hebrew culture, there was a patterning that was formed to acknowledge this growth in responsibility. And the patterning went like this. A child was born to a Hebrew family, a family that belonged to the Lord, an Israelite family, family that knew the Lord. A child is born from ages one through four. A child was given to the mother's training primarily. The mother was responsible to train that one to four-year-old in the right ways of the Lord in terms of just making them aware that you can't just do whatever you want to do in life. There is a God and he has standards and he wants us to live in a way that honors him. At age five, the child was transferred from the mother's primary training to the father's instruction. And at that point, at age five, children were introduced to the instruction of scripture. So before that age, they would hear scripture being discussed and described in the family, but targeting them for education in God's word started at age five and it was the father's responsibility. Then at age 10, children were introduced for the first time to a deeper study of the principles of God's law in the study of what was called the Mishnah. Now the Mishnah, I don't want to get off into all the the details of that traditionally, but Basically, what it was was a commentary set written by rabbis to describe their understanding of the meaning of God's law. So from five to 10, they studied the law of God. And then at age 10, they're introduced to a deeper consideration of the meaning of the law by the study of the commentaries. 
And then the final stage at age 13, there was a specific um, kind of uh, graduation ceremony that was introduced. And this still is part of Jewish culture to this day, at least the Jewish families that honor these ancient patterns. And the celebration or the ritual that was that was practiced was called for the sons of the family. It was called a bar mitzvah. How many of you have ever attended a bar mitzvah? A few of us have. And for the females of the family that were growing up, it was called a bat mitzvah. Uh, just the distinction being between the word bar means son, the word bat means daughter, and mitzvah refers to the law. So a bar mitzvah was the public ceremony and ritual to state this 13-year-old son or this 13-year-old daughter is no longer primarily accountable to their parents' instruction. They are now directly responsible to the Lord himself. They've graduated. They're now officially transitioning into adulthood and the Lord himself will hold them responsible for his standards. Now, is that an exact chapter and verse biblical standard? No, but I think the pattern that we see from the uh, Israelite families and the traditions that developed around uh, that patterning that I just described to you is, is a good starting point to understand not so much an age of accountability, but an age of growing responsibility. And there were stages to that as opposed to just one single magical number at age five or at age eight. So at birth until age five, and then age five until age 10, and age 10 until age 13, and then from 13 and beyond, just a personal and direct responsibility to God and his revealed word and his standards for their lives. All right, that brings us to the end of our study tonight. I'll save the last question I didn't get to for our next time of doing open studies, and I hope this was helpful to you tonight.